Welcome to the fourth and final episode of XDocs. A few years ago, I was a solo schools worker in England around about 1990. And I got a phone call from a pastor in another part of the country who wanted me to go down and teach him how to do schools work. So I got there, spent a couple of days, talked to him about how to get into schools, showed him how to put a school lesson together. And then the subject turned around to his kind of self-awareness that although he wasn't particularly nerdy, um, he certainly wasn't very fashionable and he was about to go into schools and he was concerned about the way he dressed because he didn't really care that much about what he normally looked like. So um, he said to me, Paul, you know, how do I, how do I dress in a way that the kids are going to accept me and not make, you know, a fool of myself? So I said, well, you know, you're kind of getting on a bit. You're not, you're not a young chicken, so you don't want to be too super trendy and go some extreme. But at the same time, you're right. You need to, you know, wear clothes that look reasonably um, contemporary. So I said, I thought the best thing maybe is to take you to a shop. So I took him to a menswear shop that was called Top Shop, or sorry, Top Man. And it just opened around about then. And it had what was basically you know, high street fashion. So I took him in the store and said, look, you know, if you really want to do this, you've got X amount of money. So I said, because this store has everything in here is fashionable, just go around and find anything that you're comfortable with. Look at the mannequins. And I said, you don't have to go and try and find the trendiest thing. Anything in here is fairly fashionable. So get whatever you feel comfortable with. As long as you wear stuff from this store and you wear it the way it's designed to be worn, you're going to look reasonably trendy. So he went around, picked up a few things, different pullovers, some jeans, some smart trousers, a waistcoat, bought a few things and then took him back to his home and he got back and he said, you know, I'm going to put some of these clothes on and see what my wife thinks. So he went upstairs, changed. I sat downstairs with his wife and he walked through the door. His wife took one look at him and went mad. She was kind of, I won't say angry, but she was frustrated. She looked at him and said, I've been asking you to wear trendier clothes and buy a waistcoat for six months and you've done nothing. He turns up and you go to Top Man and get kitted out. What's going on? So it was a bit awkward, but basically what happened was we had the same operating system. You see, he had a in that particular aspect of his life, he had a different operating system from his wife. She was begging him to be trendy, but to be honest, he couldn't care less. You know, he was madly in love with his wife. He wasn't trying to impress anybody else. He just couldn't be bothered. But when it came to evangelism and the conversation I had with him, we were on the same kind of connection and he realized for that reason, he needed to change. So she was really frustrated. I can imagine why. It's like a pastor who preaches in the church and nobody listens and then a visiting speaker comes in and they think, oh wow, you know, that's amazing. Even though the visiting speaker says what the pastor's been saying for six months. So it's all about the operating system. Um, me and him were coming from the same angle. He bought some clothes for a different reason from what his wife wanted him to buy them. Her reason never convinced him. And we've been using this analogy of a Xbox disc not working in a PlayStation. Um, the fact that if you have the PlayStation, you might say this disc doesn't work. In actual fact, it's just that your operating system doesn't work with an Xbox disc. 
So sometimes I'll share pays with people and the idea behind pays, but if they don't really understand evangelism or if, if seeking first the kingdom is not a high priority to them, then they just get confused by what pays is and why would you do that? So we call this series X Docs and there's a reason for that. X Docs connects to the Xbox analogy, but Docs is because of doxology. Doxology is where we, where we sing from the same hymn sheets. A doxology is singing together in unison. And I think that's important that we're in unison with God and with each other. If we're not in unison with God, if we have an operating system that's different from God, it's harder to hear his voice, uh, it's harder to make healthy connections with other Christians. It's also, uh, I mean, other Christians who are following Jesus and making him uh, the first priority in their life. And it's also more difficult, I think, to, to sense anointing when you do something because you might be doing it for different reasons and different motives. So uh, we're going to look at a question today and uh, a couple of different thoughts. So I know a guy who works at a famous uh, fast food restaurant. And one day he asked me a question during a um, discipleship experience. This was the question he asked me. He said, Paul, in the fast food store where I used to work, um, if we ever dropped a hamburger or fries, we had to pick them up and we could never sell them. Even though quite often the floors were clean or even if they fell on in the wrapper, we still couldn't sell them once they touched the ground. We had to put them to one side and eventually get rid of them. On one particular day, a homeless guy came in and uh, he asked for some food. He said, I have no money, but he asked me for food. And I didn't know what to do because I had this hamburger that was not thrown away yet, but had touched the floor. There was nothing wrong with it at all, but it was wrong. It was illegal or, or I, the rules of the store were that I could not sell it to anybody. Should I have given it to him, Paul? Even though my boss said, I should throw it away. You know, that were the rules, but my, my care for this guy, my compassion for this guy, the fact that I'm a Christian, said to me, really, I should give this guy this hamburger rather than worrying about getting into trouble. What should I do? It's an interesting question. Now, immediately an answer may come to your mind, and we're going to look at that. You see, I think the answer to this question helps us understand one of the contrasts uh, that again helps us figure out, are we seeking first the kingdom or seeking second the kingdom? So if you've been tracking with us over these Livewire episodes, we know we have a contrast. So before I, I share with you what that contrast is and what I consider the answer to that question to be, let's look at our first workshop. Please discuss what is the answer and what is the principle behind your answer to the hamburger question. If you do have a principle, how would you summarize it in a soundbite? So, do you have an answer for my friend? And um, if you do, what principle are you using? Maybe it's already a biblical principle or maybe it's one that you can make up. Um, so, spend just five minutes thinking about that and we'll come back and talk about what the answer is to that riddle, if you like. So in a moment, I'm going to address that question. But first, let's talk about David. Uh, David was a man who was after God's own heart. God said that about David. He didn't say about himself 
Other people didn't simply say it. It was inspired by God. I think it's amazing that God would say about anybody that that person has a heart after his own heart. At the same time, David committed sins. And I want to talk about a situation uh, that came about because of a particular sin that he committed. Uh, one day, David counted, he decided to count uh, the nation, the amount of fighting men in the nation, the amount of people in the nation. And uh, God was really angry about it. Now, the Bible doesn't say explicitly why God was angry about it. Uh, without context, a lot of people say, well, it's because um, David was putting his trust in an army, not God. But that's just supposition. If you have read that passage, or if you look at the context, you realize that whenever somebody counted an army, or when somebody counted the fighting men, it was for the purpose of taxation. Um, so God previously had asked Moses to count the army. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But what David, it seems, was doing was trying to figure out a way of getting more taxes, putting a burden on people. At least that's my understanding as I look at the context of that passage. Now, think about this. So because of that, God decides to punish David and the whole nation. He's the king, so the whole nation gets punished because of the king's decision. And there's a plague that is sent. At the height of the plague, as it's devastating the country, David pleads to God. And David says to God, listen, this is my sin, not their sin. Please stop. And God hears his prayer. Let me read to you what happens next. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arana looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why has the Lord, the king, come to his servants? To buy your fleshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arona said to David, Let my Lord, the king, take whatever he wishes and offer it up. There are oxen for the burnt offering, and there are threshing sledges and oxyoxes for the wood. Your majesty, Arona, gives you all this to the king. Arona also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arona, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. David, a man after God's own heart, understood a really important principle in the kingdom of God. And it's this, that when we give, God doesn't look at what we give, he looks at what we hold back. David was not prepared to make a sacrifice to God that cost him nothing because he understood that God wouldn't be looking at what he gave. God would be looking at what he held back. This is a principle that, that is throughout the Bible. Uh, later on, when we think about Jesus, when he wants to point out generosity and sacrifice to his disciples, he takes them to where a wealthy man is given a huge amount 
and a little uh, little amount is given by an older poor woman. What you notice in this story is what Jesus says about the woman. Listen to these words. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Jesus clearly pointed out to the disciples, not so much just the money that she gave, but what she held back. David understands that principle. If we want to figure out where we are as far as seeking God first, or whether the kingdom of God has took a back seat to other things, when we look at our generosity, when we look at our sacrifice, we don't look to what we give, we look to what we hold back. Well, let me put it this way. It's the difference between sacrifice and surplus. When we seek second, we say, we cannot give if we don't have the money. When we're seeking first, we say, we cannot give, we will find the money. Now that's easier said than done because it's very difficult to get money from nowhere at all. Um, you can do it with chocolate though, I don't know if you knew that. Let me just show you a video to show you how you can get chocolate from nothing. So I'm sure there's a logical reason for the way that video works, but I'm confused. Right now, I'm convinced you can make chocolate out of nothing. But I know that's a lot more difficult when it comes to something like money. So let's think about the hamburger question. I don't know what your answer was. Once I heard that question, I didn't simply say to the young guy what my answer was. I told him the story I just told you. I told him the principle I've just told you, and then I asked him, knowing this principle, what's your answer? And he said, quite rightly, I suppose I should have thrown the burger away and bought the homeless guy a new one myself. Absolutely right. You know, it's not generosity to give somebody something that doesn't belong to you. It's generosity when you sacrifice to give somebody something. Sometimes that feels like we're creating something out of nothing. Sometimes we have a surplus and it's easy just to grab that other person's hamburger and give it. It's much more difficult. Sometimes it takes a miracle when you have to give it out of the lack that you have. But that's the kind of thing that really impresses God. So when we think about X docs, when we when we try to check our hearts, when I'm trying to check my heart and I look and think, is the kingdom of God still my primary concern? Or has my society, have Christianity, have other things interfered with that? Do I make decisions in a different way now? Has the kingdom of God become my second or third concern? One of the ways I can check myself is by thinking, okay, where's my generosity coming from? Is it purely giving away other people's stuff? or is a genuine sacrifice? Is it surplus or sacrifice? Let's look at our um, second workshop.
What other scenarios could you create in order to teach this principle? Or if you want a bigger challenge, why not create a parable to explain this principle? Um, if you heard my teaching on the parables and how to create a parable, it involves six things. Firstly, a rhetorical question, whom of you? Secondly, uh, the cast is introduced early in the story and God is represented by a key character. Thirdly, there's a plot. Fourthly, the plot involves some kind of conflict, maybe a conflict of interest, a conflict between people, or like my friend had a conflict in his own mind. And then importantly, number five, there's a twist. One of the characters doesn't act in the customary way, the way you would expect. And finally, number six, there's a call out. So, such as, um, so it is with the kingdom of God, or so will you if you, some kind of appeal, if you like. So, two ways of answering this. You can do it the easy way, which is simply think of another um, scenario just to explain the principle to people, or you can take the bigger challenge and write a parable. I uh, hope you take some time to, I would encourage you to take at least 15 minutes over this and see where you get to. So I like to quote an Arabic proverb that says to teach is to learn twice. And the more you teach this principle, the more that it will hopefully become part of you. So let me just finish with some really practical uh, things that you can do. You know, what can you do when you think about this principle? Well, I think the first thing to understand is this, that uh, those who seek first sacrifice for others out of what they get. But those who seek second, once they get enough for themselves, they no longer try for others. I notice this, when people are really seeking first, you know, they give, they sacrifice, and they keep on working hard, they keep on um, working, thinking, trying of ways that they can have enough for themselves, but also enough for others. And sometimes that means others come first. Those who seek second, tend to get enough for themselves and then think, okay, what surplus do I have to give away? It's not that they're not generous. As I said before, seeking second or third doesn't mean you're not a Christian or don't love Jesus. It just means you're seeking third, fourth, second. And some of the promises that Jesus gives us don't apply. Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of God, I'll give you everything you need. But sometimes we try and get everything we need first and it, essentially seek the kingdom of God second. And those kind of people, what happens is they still give, but it's after they're secure. And sometimes once after they're secure, they stop trying for anybody else. If you've noticed that in your life, I don't mean just to do with money, to do with anything, your emotions, to do with um, the time you have for other people, wherever it might be, I think it's just something for you to stop, think about and pray about as well. So here's a picture of my wife, the Foxy Lynn. Many years ago, um, when we were fairly newly married and we were, uh, I was working for the church, we didn't have an awful lot of money and sometimes, literally, the cupboards were bare. Um, it was very rare, but sometimes, you know, it was a little bit difficult. And I remember one day turning to Lynn and saying, hey, you know, are you okay with this? Are you okay with this lifestyle? You know, I, I wanna do this, but are you okay? And she said, look, Paul, I don't mind how much the church gives you. All I care about is they're giving 
as much as they can, that they're doing their best. I thought it was a brilliant statement that she made. It really helped me. It helped me thinking about how I lead people. I may not always be able to give them a lot, but I want to make sure I'm giving them the best I possibly can. Because I know for Lynn, as long as she felt the church was doing that, she was happy. And the church did more than that. The church actually um, sacrificed, particularly the pastor, Harry Letson. He, he limited his salary in order that I would um, be paid. And I think that's the seed of pays. That's why partly I'm sure that when we set up the apprenticeship, uh, we offered a free apprenticeship when many others were asking for money for, for the training that they offered. For me, that's what you do. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so important that you want to find a way to help others participate. Now, let me show you um, four quadrants. Um, these are the four quadrants. I don't know if you've ever seen them for wealth creation. This is how you progress through wealth creation. First of all, there's the employee. Then the employee becomes a manager. The manager becomes an owner. And then an owner can become an investor. So usually employees are paid less than anybody else. A manager has a bit more responsibility, probably has the skills to manage people, to organize, a little bit more pressure on their uh, shoulders, so they deserve and they're usually paid more money. The owner of a company, there's full responsibility. The book starts with them. That's an awful lot of pressure and requires a multitude of skills. So they're normally paid a lot more money. They pay themselves, in fact, usually. But the person who who normally makes the most money is an investor. Somebody who's probably usually made money from being an employee, then a boss, then an owner. And they've took that money and they've invested that money in other businesses. That's how you really make an awful lot of money in this world. Now, let me show you my version of this. Let me show you what I consider to be a, a kind of kingdom creation uh, quadrant. It starts with a follower, then a leader, then a mentor, and then a pioneer. So here's my thoughts on this. You know, a, a follower is really important. You need people to do the work. So in a pays context, that would be like a team member. They can make a difference. A leader, such as a team leader, can make an even bigger difference because in a pays context, at least, we can't start a new team, whether it's a team reaching colleges or businesses or schools without a team leader. So a team leader creates an opportunity for an entire team. That means we can reach a whole new community. But then a mentor, a mentor can mentor several leaders. And I think that, that person can make an, an even greater difference. The problem is that sometimes we try and skip some of those stages. I know people who want to be mentors before they've actually done the work. But I think the best kind of mentors are not people with letters at the end of their names. They're, they're people who've done what you're trying to do. I always suggest when you look for a mentor, for instance, look for somebody in a, who's got a great track record in the specific thing you're trying to do. But then fourthly, I think of Jesus, who was a pioneer. Jesus created a whole new uh, opportunity, a whole new way of doing things. Jesus was the way. And I think when you think about pioneers, people who create whole new opportunities 
who create an entire new way of reaching an entire different culture. Maybe they have the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. That's just my thoughts. You may not agree with them. I'm not saying they're biblical. They're my way of thinking. In a moment, we'll see what your way of thinking looks like. But when you think about pioneers, um, a story comes to mind I'd like to read to you because I think it helps us understand the importance of sacrifice, not surplus, if you're going to seek first the kingdom of God. The date is February 15th, 1921. The place, New York City. The operating room of the Kane Summit Hospital. A doctor is performing an appendectomy. In many ways, the events leading to the surgery are uneventful. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery. In his distinguished 37-year medical career, he has performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. So this surgery will be uneventful in all ways except two. The first novelty of this operation is the use of local anesthesia in major surgery. Dr. Kane is a crusader against the hazards of general anesthesia. He contends that a local application is far safer. Many of his colleagues agree with him in principle, but in order for them to agree in practice, they will have to see the theory applied. So Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer, a patient who is willing to undergo surgery while under local anesthesia. A volunteer is not easily found. Many are squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others are fearful that the anesthesia might wear off too soon. Eventually, however, Dr. Kane finds a candidate. On Tuesday morning, February the 15th, the historic operation occurs. The patient is prepped and wheeled into the operating room. A local anaesthetic is applied. As he has done thousands of times, Dr. Kane dissects the superficial tissues and locates the appendix. He skillfully exercises it and concludes the surgery. During the procedure, the patient complains of only minor discomfort. Dr. Kane has proven his theory. I've told you the first novelty, the use of local anesthesia, but let me tell you the second novelty. The second novelty is the patient's. The courageous candidate for surgery by Dr. Kane was Dr. Kane himself. So the doctor became the patient in order for the patient to trust the doctor. For me, that reminds me of Christ. Christianity isn't simply believing in Jesus, it's believing in the things that Jesus believed in. And importantly for today, Christianity isn't simply trusting in Jesus, it's trusting in what Jesus believed in. And Jesus believed that if we seek first the kingdom of God in any area of our lives, he will give us what we need. So this whole series of X-Docs started with Christ versus Christianity, that we should not compare ourselves to Christianity. We need to compare ourselves to Christ, not simply what Christ might do in a given situation, but understanding what Christ did do in the situations he was faced with. Now, let me finish with one last thought about surplus versus sacrifice, and it's this. Be prepared because when God calls you, 
he always empties you first of the things you want to hold on to and the things you think you're going to need. Several times people have joined pays, men or women with families and they've said to me, you know what, I've got some savings, I don't mind if pays can't pay me yet, I'll use my savings. And so often I've said to them, that's fine, just understand you won't see the miracles until everything's gone. Only when you've been emptied by God will you suddenly start to see God provided. And that has happened so many times when people have come with bank accounts. They've not seen God provide. They're wondering why God's not provided and the money's going out of their savings and eventually the savings are gone and then suddenly God starts to provide. So faith is always a matter of waiting, stepping out in faith and then waiting for God to do the miracle. Okay, with all that in mind, let's think about our final workshop. Create a pathway using your own quadrants for you to be a greater giver for the purposes of God. So you saw me um, use that quadrant. Uh, I showed you the wealth creation and I came up with my own. You may or may not agree with it. I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in you using the idea to create, I guess, four steps or stages for you to grow in generosity. Not necessarily generosity of money, could be any area. What would that look like for you? Describe yourself in each of those four quadrants. Um, hopefully this has been helpful to you. It's all been more of a devotional Livewire series just to help you have that heart check. You know, particularly for those of you who are listening to this and you're in ministry, sometimes we don't realize that actually just because we're in ministry doesn't mean that we can't backslide or move away from God. You know, so many of the things that we would normally be able to check are we still going to church? Um, are we still praying? Um, those things that normally slip away, you have to do because you're in the ministry. So sometimes we need other things, other ways of checking, am I still leaning towards God? And I've suggested four ways in which you can do that. Hopefully they've been helpful to you. Um, hopefully they've inspired you as well. Thanks for listening. Bye.